Hey guys, I'm Annie Allen, a certified divorce coach and RCSD divorce realtor, and your host for the Starting Over Stronger podcast, the show that's all about bringing you the practical professional help you need as you divorce and the hope that you can then create a life you'll love. I don't skim the surface around here. If you want to dive deep into the wholehearted wisdom of how to have a better divorce experience than everyone else you know by changing what you do, then this is the podcast for you. After a lifetime in dysfunctional relationships with those closest to me and over a decade in recovery, I'm ready to share everything I've learned and everything I'm still learning because I believe the keys to having a better divorce experience and better relationships to come should never be a secret. Here, you'll find episodes that offer enlightening and unconventional wisdom that is both actionable and sometimes even fun, like friends chatting over coffee. So come be a fly on the wall for these amazing conversations that will give you a fresh, honest look at how you can divorce well and then live well. If you're ready to do divorce differently, Starting Over Stronger is all about you deciding, surviving, and then thriving through and after your divorce. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Welcome back. Today is part two of Q&A with a divorce court judge. We're joined again today by the Honorable Judge Kate Lynch. Judge Lynch, if you didn't already listen in last week, is a divorce court judge on the domestic violence docket in Wyandotte County, Kansas. And we started this interview with her last week, and we're going to just be picking up right in the middle where we left off um, for part two. So if you haven't already listened to last week's episode, you might as well start there and then come join us here for the second half of this incredible interview. So like I said, we're going to just jump right in with where we left off last week. So here we go. You know, I guess really it comes down to what can be presented and heard is what's transpired between you and the other party. Um, I We've talked a little bit on the show before. In fact, uh, some of it was with attorney Kinsey Higgins on um, what's the best way to present that kind of evidence. She she made the recommendation that rather than screenshotting um, text conversations to actually do a screen recording where you start beginning before the conversation started and scroll through everything. So so that you get context as a judge, which I'm sure is helpful. Um, anything else that you would advise as far as the gathering and recording of evidence that can actually be presented and heard? Well, I think um, there's a lot of great communication apps out there that keep a record. I know there's, well, there are two that I can think of are, um, I think it's called Close, C-L-O-S-E app. And then our family wizard. It can't be manipulated. It can't be changed by any of the parties. All of that communication is saved on a server and it's accessible. Uh, if you give a court personnel the information, then the court can get it through a court service officer or those types of things. I think it's always best to um, speak to the other party on the other side of the case as if you were 
working in a business like setting. Mm-hmm. And it's a context is always important. And yeah. uh, because just like that, we see when we see videos on uh, the news of somebody beating up another person, you're like, well, what happened? You always have the commentator that comes on and says, well, what happened before that? Right. You know, there's yeah. two sides to every story. So if you yeah. do save all of the information and not just the bad text, you save mm-hmm. the entire thread. I think they're my kids might have told me they are called. Then that yes. puts it in context <laughs> for the judge. And then right. if somebody gets frustrated, you might see, oh, okay. So we're asking the <laughs> same question over and over and over again. I've mm-hmm. seen that. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen those ploys and those sorts of things. But yes, I, context is very important. Yeah. And I advise my clients all the time, just, you know, you have to stay above reproach because if you want him held to an account of his behavior, then you are going to be as well. So um oftentimes what I would really like to recommend, and I stop short of it often because if they share kids, I'm worried that I'm going to put them in a situation by recommending it that they're not going to want to be in, which is no contact. And so when when you're in a situation where the victim wants to be on our family wizard because she knows there's protection there, but he won't get on it because he wants to keep abusing her through text and and whatever else, what is okay for her to do? Can she block him even though they share children and, and force him to either not communicate with her at all or only communicate through this traceable way? That's placing me in a position of answering a question that might come before me. But I think hypothetically speaking, what might be a good idea is file the motion with the court if Mm -hmm. you're in court and say, judge, you ordered this and uh, the order is not, the person is not complying with that order. And I no longer want to have contact because of the abuse that goes on. And then let the court make the final determination. Don't, I think it's always a bad idea to make unilateral decisions Mm -hmm. without, if you're in court, without checking with the court first and letting the court. And I recognize that it may seem like that's a small thing to come back to court for, but when, but courts are aware that communication can be used as an abuse uh, tool. So, mm-hmm. the, and the, that's why the courts are so excited about ordering our, our family wizard and the close app and those types of things so that it, the parties can still be parents, but not the kids aren't weaponized. Okay. Very good. Um, a couple of different questions came in and I think they're really asking the same thing. Um, basically, um, will domestic violence have an impact on the outcome of my case? I think that's a resounding yes. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of worded a little bit differently and I think maybe a little bit better in this other question, which says, do prior acts of domestic violence affect your decisions regarding asset distribution during trial? As I stated, Kansas is a no-fault state. If you can show that the abuse affected the use of assets, then you would be more likely, I think you would be more likely to see a judge take that into account. But you would have to tie it to one of the other factors in uh, dividing the assets. Okay. And I think, honestly, the better question or certainly equally important question is whether prior acts of domestic violence are going to affect your decisions regarding custody. 
That is a specific factor that the court has to consider. It's one of the factors that is set out in this custody statute. So the courts have to consider that evidence. And if it is credible and what that means for the parties going forward. Okay. Here's a a tough question that um, obviously, again, comes from a place of pain. How do abusers end up then with custody of their kids? Sometimes. I'll be brutally honest because you have judges that aren't educated about domestic violence. Okay. Also, if you notice, there's a lot of groups out there about father's rights, et cetera, et cetera. Moms are too busy raising the kids to do those sorts of things, I think, sometimes. That one, that comment might be a, an issue, but I noticed that a lot when uh, my colleague, uh, Judge Alvey, was on the Blue Ribbon Commission for Child Support, and it was always a father's rights group that was in front of them arguing about child support being lowered, never a mother's rights committee uh, out there asking for it to be raised. And mm-hmm. I, so I think it's uh, some of that issue might be uh, in at play there. I also think it's um, judges not being educated about what domestic violence looks like in the courtroom. Uh, yeah. I think it might be judges um, looking at not taking into account all the factors that we're required to take into uh, when it comes to the best interest of the child and the mm-hmm. children and whether or not you're setting up a situation where co-parenting is never going to work. Yeah. True. Um, Okay, so speaking of co-parenting. On that topic about the abuse, there are there's some legislation and it's been very interesting. I'm on the National Council of Family Law and Juvenile Court uh, Judges Legislative Committee, and we've become aware of some cases out there or some legislation that's been proposed where that shouldn't be a factor that's considered domestic violence. Or then there's some others that say if you're uh, have been convicted of domestic violence, et cetera, you should never be able to have custody of your kids. So there's some that, that that's becoming somewhat of a political volleyball. And, and it, so you kind of have to, which is what I always tried to do when I practice law as a practitioner is if the domestic violence has taken place and it's affected the kids and the kids are can be weaponized or it's been attempt the children and access to the children has been attempted to be weaponized um, as abuse that those are the situations that are become very concerning. Yeah. Problem is a lot of times in those situations, the woman has no money. She has no recourse after a bad judgment has happened, you know, in that kind of a situation. And I'm aware that the uh, economics of the situation are rarely uh, favorable in those situations. But, you know, uh, I will tell you that the Kansas legal services attorneys that I have Mm -hmm. dealt with in my courtroom are good attorneys. They know the law and they know how to present their case and they understand domestic violence. Okay. So don't be afraid and think just because some an attorney works for Kansas Legal Services that they're not good. That isn't the situation at all. The situation may be they're just not going to work for a big firm because their heart is in a different place. That's awesome. Good to know. I actually have someone that I'm going to make that recommendation to right now then. So thank you for that. And every, just about every county, every state has a, um, has a Kansas legal services. I think in Missouri, it's Missouri, Western district of Missouri legal services. I think that's the name. I'm not a hundred percent sure, 
Um, and, and then there are attorneys who work on sliding scales um, for through the Kansas Bar Association referral program. Okay, very good. Um, I have a couple questions on uh, more or less residential issues, which is um, if someone uh, as a victim of domestic violence were to move into a shelter without their kids, what would be the likely outcome for her? I can't answer that question because that one. Okay. <laughs> I thought of that after I asked it. <laughs> I wish I could, but I can't answer that one. Yeah. Well, that kind of knocks out a few questions. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. I warned you about um, that going in, but there were going to be some that I couldn't answer. I had to try. I had to try. Exactly, exactly. I understand. Um, So let's see. Um, But let me say this. I think the mere mere fact, just the mere fact that someone left a domestic violence situation and moved into a shelter, that in and of itself is not going to be a king's ex to that person obtaining custody because there are not going to be an immediate abandonment claim against her. I've heard that. If she would leave the marital residence and move into a shelter and leave the kids at their home where they have their clothes and those sorts of things, sure, he's going to run in and try that. But I think there Mm -hmm. can be some context that's put to that. And judges have to look at all of those factors in the statute before that they could say, oh, she left and so she can never see the kids or have any parenting. Right. And there's so many different factors. I mean, there's no way for us to sit here and say you should or you shouldn't take your kids with you to the shelter because we don't know your situation. So exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And then I guess the only other thing really on as as far as um, who's going to live where and all of that is whether or not verbal abuse and threats of uh, property damage are sufficient enough to grant an ex parte motion requiring the abuser to leave the home. Well, let's let me just grab my book because I just happen to have pulled <laughs> okay. it out because sometimes even though doing this work for 15 years, there's a situation that comes up and you're like, well, does that quite get me there or do the, are mm-hmm. they entitled to that order? So, yeah. OK, qualifications for a protection from abuse order. They have mm-hmm. to be residing in the home or formally resided together. So let's okay. say they broke up and somebody moved out. Or have a child in common. I'm going to use kind of the, the, there's another factor, but it's a little more confusing. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to read that one off. So, or they are in a dating relationship and the person has intentionally attempted to cause you or a child bodily injury or attempt intentionally or recklessly cause bodily injury. So that's not a verbal threat, but the next one is, or the person has intentionally placed by physical threat, you or a child in fear of imminent bodily injury. So let's say there's no words, but he looks right at you, throws a punch into the wall right next to your head. That's property damage, right? Right. Judges are allowed to use our common sense. Um, although I will tell you that I'm sure there's someone out there that's alleged that I don't have any common sense because you know, 50% <laughs> of the time somebody's, you know, 100% of the time, 50% of the people are walking out of my courtroom and they didn't get exactly what they wanted. So they don't like me. That's right. Yeah. You know, but that's okay. But yeah, so we're able to use our common sense and our reasonable person thinking standards. So even though it might be property damage now, if it's going to be I'm going to go slash your tires on your car. Well, that's a threat to slash the tires. That's a threat about property damage. You'd have to tie Mm -hmm. it into whether or not it puts you in fear of bodily injury. But 
remember, how do people get out of situations? This day and age, and especially yeah. in Kansas City, where we don't have a mass transit system, they get in their car and they go. Yeah. Same with taking yeah. your cell phone and smashing the cell phone. Mm-hmm. Nobody has a landline anymore, or at least mm-hmm. I should say nobody under the age of 54, and because I'm 54 and below. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so... A couple of things on like actual courtroom um, situations. Um, first of all, um, I've had on the show previously a guest um, that I interviewed who was a vocational consultant, and she spoke about the difference that it could make for a client to bring a vocational plan um, to have a vocational expert or an expert witness um, to testify on her behalf as to her um, earning potential and what is required to get her to where she needs to be, you know, financially speaking. And, you know, more or less, I guess, to build a case for what support she's trying to um, gain. Um, what thoughts do you have on that? Um, I think that's an excellent idea. Uh, I didn't ever have a client that we used that type of uh, evidence, but I think it would be helpful to the court. And especially if you have someone who can put it in, uh, economic terms, but instill in that language that kind of universally understood. So we're mm-hmm. not talking a big economic theory, but actually here are the facts. Here's where she was. Here's where she is now. Here's what she's going to need to get to that position. I think okay. that's an excellent idea. It would certainly help me in making decisions when the court has to make a fair, just and equitable decision. When you have mm-hmm. more information and good factual information, you're going to make a better decision. Absolutely. Um, some people want to know, you know, if they're going to have to take the stand. They've never been in a courtroom and that's the, the only thing they can think about it. You know, they've seen a lot of TV. <laughs> so what does that actually look like in divorce court? <laughs> you're called to the stand uh, because I try and keep my courtroom to be less confrontational, even though there is a conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes I will say, is everybody comfortable with the witnesses testifying from counsel table? So they're not up on the stand. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes judges are uncomfortable with that. That's just what I do. If you are on the stand and you're going to be on the stand, usually that's either to the left or the right of the judge. Um, there'll be a court reporter. If the judges, uh, has a court reporter, if not, everything will be recorded by, um, digital recording. Uh, we have a recording system in my courtroom, so there's going to be a microphone in front of you. You rarely have to project your voice because we try and locate the court reporters where they can hear everything. Now, if mm-hmm. you have a very soft, uh, sweet voice like my daughter, then you're probably <laughs> going to have to project your voice just a little bit. Um, and the, uh, your attorney would ask questions first in direct evidence. If it's your attorney that has called you, um, the, and he cannot lead you on questions. So he cannot lead you to the answer of those questions. Mm -hmm. That's a frequent issue. And of course, there are some things that people are allowed that other attorneys are going to allow the parties to lead on because they know we're going to get to the heart of the matter. And then they're going to start objecting on leading because they don't want the proceedings to take 17 hours when they can take seven, right? 
So, (laughs) you know, just be prepared for that. And then there's the cross-examination and they are asked, they are allowed to ask leading questions on Um, cross-examination, but they cannot go into anything that was not testified about on direct evidence. Mm -hmm. So if your attorney didn't ask you about it, they can't raise it on cross-examination. That doesn't mean that they can't call you in their case in chief. They can because you're a party. Sponsorship for today's show is provided by family law attorney Mandy Rowan Pingle. Attorney Mandy Pingle is one of Starting Over Stronger's preferred referral partners because of her passion and integrity with her clients. She handles complicated custody, high asset and difficult asset divorce cases, military family law cases, which she spoke about on an episode in season one and child custody cases involving abuse, neglect, special needs, and other unique family issues. In season two of the show, she appeared again to share her unique and important insights on how to select an attorney you will love. And I love referring my Kansas City divorce coaching clients to Mandy Pingle. So if you are in Jackson or Clay County in Missouri or Johnson County, Kansas, and you're facing a difficult or unique divorce situation, you can connect with her at www.kansascityfamilylaw.com or her new office number at 816-683-9595. Please tell her that you heard about her on Starting Over Stronger. Good point to ask this. If he doesn't have an attorney, will he be allowed to question her? Yes. Or vice versa. Yes. <laughs> it's the other way around. Yes, they will. Let me tell you a little story about a guy who uh, ended up being my stalker and got criminally charged as stalking me as a judge. And believe me, I never wanted to be this person, but had to do it because I had to protect my family. And mm-hmm. uh, he represented himself. And he got to cross-examine me. And so I'm <laughs> acutely aware of how much uh, fun or not fun that can be. But remember, if he is, if somebody is trying to um, be argumentative, the judge can step in. If somebody is trying to be abusive, the judge should and, and step in and say, it's argumentative. Uh, if he mm-hmm. tries to approach the witness, you never approach a witness in a courtroom without a requesting the judge's mm-hmm. permission to do so, even lawyers. So those types of things you should be protected on. Okay. Very good. Um, is it better to bring all the evidence possible or be particular or picky or, you know, about it? Strategic I would say about it. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's domestic violence, I think mm-hmm. sometimes it's best to highlight the worst incident and the most recent incident. That's how I would approach it. That is how uh, we now have a, the state of Kansas has gone to a digital portal where you can Mm -hmm. go and get your own protection order. And it's sent to the clerk's office of the county in which you file and they will get to it that day. Usually it's, it's still not available on weekends and those sorts of things. And that's the approach that they take. And that's the approach that I took as a uh, attorney. And if there are things that happen in between there that are significant, obviously that's, that can show a continuing pattern. Yeah. And are the victim's therapist notes or emails regarding the abuser admissible as evidence at trial, or is a therapist required to obtain waivers from the abuser in order to provide notes and emails? 
if the court has ordered any party to obtain a mental health evaluation and those sorts of things, then those are the that's and that was obtained pursuant to a court order or Mm -hmm. you went because you were ordered to by court, then those are going to come in. The other things are that's one of those questions where I'd have to hear all the facts before I answer it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think the last one about the courtroom is what effect you see um, guardians ad litem having. um, And in particular, this particular asker was in a a parental alienation situation. Um, And so I think, I think the question kind of sits around uh, the the potential that at least in her case and in in others that I've been a part of um, the GAL actually worsened the situation for the kids because the abuse was covert. That's one of those questions, a little tricky to answer because you know, could come before me. I will tell you this, the parental alienation topic is a very hot potato because Mm -hmm. uh, even the national council will recognize that parental alienation syndrome that came about all of the that's pretty much been debunked um, the mm-hmm. syndrome in and of itself, because it isn't a syndrome. It's not in the DSM five. It can't, there are no factors, uh, but do people engage in individual parental alienation and do things trying to alienate the other parent? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. Yeah. The uh, guardian ad litems though, the reason guardian ad litems came about was to keep the kids off the stand in divorce cases so that they, you know, are represented, if you will. Now there are certain judges who, instead of appointing a guardian ad litem, will appoint a child custody investigator. And Mm -hmm. usually that's an attorney with a pretty extensive family law background And that gives them a little bit wider berth in asking questions and presenting evidence. And sometimes it is on a judge by judge, courtroom by courtroom basis about how far the judge will let the guardian ad litem go down the road. Well, I want to say that I think that's um, um, a definite positive that guardians ad litem and child custody evaluators are taking the place of children in the courtroom. I'm thankful for that. Um, I think what I, what's kind of rising to the surface for me on this question is that there's probably just as much education needed in those arenas as there is with judges with regard to covert, you know, psychological, emotional and verbal abuse. And the way those present uh, Supreme Court rule. I'm probably going to get this wrong and everybody's going to laugh at me, but I think it's 112 <laughs> it might be 120 that actually <laughs> allow guardian ad litems. They specifically set out um, the hours that they have to have concerning child custody, continuing legal education. Uh, mm-hmm. I do not believe that there is any, continuing legal education on domestic violence that's required under that rule. And maybe that is something that the Supreme Court in making up their rules should look into. I will tell you this, though. Every year, the Wyandotte County Bar Association does a all-day CLE training that is set out to satisfy the requirements of that Supreme Court rule. And just Mm -hmm. about every year, good old Judge Lynch is there giving a domestic violence uh, education, uh, and usually from uh, usually from the materials provided to me from the National Council. So I'm taking directly 
what I was taught as a judge, breaking it down, maybe changing some of the scenarios, but putting him in the guardian ad litem and right out in front of the guardian ad litem. We have a scenario we do concerning Jared's place, and it's a pretty horrific case where you can go through, and it was actually a civil and a criminal case, and then there were some probation issues, and you you pick all the spots where the horrible tragedy that occurred could have been stopped if they're just mm-hmm. education in the court system. Yeah, Between absolutely. all the entities in the court system. And there's also a yeah. good exercise called comings and goings, and it is conducted in silence, and it puts you in the shoes of a domestic violence victim, and you get a certain amount of money, and you get a certain amount of goodwill cards, and there's all these places that you can go, and uh, and then you read the scenario off, and then you have to make that decision. And not everybody is given the same amount of resources. So not everybody gets the same amount of money or goodwill cards. And uh, it's the same scenario that we were put through as judges. And it's conducted in silence because we know that victims of domestic violence are often cut off from friends and family. And that's one of the very <laughs> first questions we ask in the debrief is why did we conduct this in silence? So, and wow. so, they, so I'm not saying that we're doing everything right in the Wyandotte County Bar Association and the Wyandotte County uh, judges, but we are trying to get the information and the education out there. Yeah. Well, and you're certainly not alone in the lack of education with regard to covert abuse. It's it's a nationwide, industry-wide problem. It just is unfortunate that in this particular arena of divorce and domestic violence, the people that are being hurt by it the most are children. Right. And so, you know, we want to all be doing everything we can. And the first thing that you're taught as a judge when you're making a decision about kids is you always put the best interest of the children first. And yeah, absolutely. There, are, there are some things that are uh, we are learning are harder to see than other things. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, and on that note, really, the last thing that I have is something that I feel like might feel um a bit like an attack. And so I'm going to present it in a way and as best of a way as I can um, and just kind of roll it all into one question. Um, because the things that I was asked is, do you feel like family court is a boys club uh, bias on the bench and the, your favorite one and mine, how can we change this fundamentally flawed system? <laughs> and so without putting you on the spot, um, the, the feeling that I get from all of these questions is, I'm already a victim. How do I not be more of a victim when I try to get out of that situation? What do I do to prevent myself from being in a worse situation because I try to leave my abuse? Right. Um, I think safety planning is really important. Uh, Making sure that if you can have money that you no one else knows about so that if you can go that you have money, that you have a credit card, that you can survive on your own for a little while. Because mm-hmm. nothing in the court system moves fast. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was always advice that I think even the safe home and those folks give. They they you make sure you have a plan. Just don't mm-hmm. run, you know. Make yeah. sure that you have a plan in place. Um, yeah. So that you can survive until you can get some uh, child support and those sorts of things. One of the things that we did in Wyandotte County was with our protection from abuse cases. We were finding that a lot of times people weren't filing for divorce for various reasons 
or in the PFA or the paternity cases for various reasons it just never got done. Or we'd put orders in place and they'd be getting along okay and then the PFA would go away and then there's no orders. So we brought in the uh, Division of Children and Family Services contractor and our court trustee contractor to make sure that we get that child support started right off the bat because we know one of the reasons women return to their abusers is financial. I don't think it's a boys club because I think some of the best family law judges and some of the best family law attorneys are women. (laughs) And I think that's because women are better at holding two conflicting ideas in their head and moving forward with them. Whereas, Mm -hmm. and this psychology will bear me out on this, men's brains (laughs) do better with not having to hold two conflicting ideas at a time. And I think it's because women are better multitaskers. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. That is science, not judgment. That's not me. That's (laughs) science. And that's science uh, based on, that's education that I was given as a judge, uh, that scientific brain activity. Part of that, as far as the, the bias and those sorts of things going, I think we're now starting to see education for judges with implicit bias. And I think sometimes there are perhaps uh, judges who have not done a very good job of recognizing their implicit bias. Uh, the classic example is, oh, I'm colorblind or I'm, it doesn't matter what gender you are. That's BS. Our entire <laughs> lives, we have been fed messages, social messages through commercials or whatever. The important thing is to recognize that to know that going in. And if you find yourself leaning towards a situation, then you need to ask yourself, why am I leaning towards or away from a situation and make sure it's based on facts and not your implicit bias because everybody has it. And to say that you don't is that's, that's problem number one. Yeah. Judge Karen, Karen Arnold Berger, who was our court of appeals judge uh, in Kansas, who is a court of appeals judge, does this amazing training on implicit bias. What was her name again? Karen Arnoldberger. And uh, she, you can probably find it online because she uh, did it as part of our Kansas judicial conference this year. The judges are all brought together uh, every year to get our CLE or judicial uh, education hours. Yeah. She did it as part of it's, it's a fan. I'd, Seen part of it before because of my training with the National Council, but she does a really great job. Okay, well, so in closing, I want to say, you know, when we ask the question how to change a fundamentally flawed system, I think no matter whether you're talking about divorce court or anything in the world that you think is fundamentally flawed, I think the answer is that you turn your pain into action. And so even as I sat here and listened to you today, and I heard you say that the Supreme Court has continuing education requirements for, or maybe that we could petition the Supreme Court to have continuing education requirements for you, you know, we were specifically talking about guardians ad litem and and child custody evaluators, but I think we can very easily put judges and, and lawyers into that pool as well of people who need to better understand covert our covert abuse. Mm-hmm. And that goes for mental health professionals as well, because quite frankly, therapy puts a lot of people in really bad situations way too often because of a practitioner who has a good heart, but doesn't really understand what's happening in that relationship. So 
I think for me, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, what can I do to petition the Supreme Court to add continuing education for this, you know, and, and I'm planning on emailing you after this conversation to ask you literally, what can I do? Somebody has to start somewhere. <laughs> you know, the, the court system, the judges all uh, are, there are four, I think there's four counties. I think it's Shawnee, Sedgwick, Wyandotte, and Crawford, where we are elected. The other judges are retention judges, meaning once we're appointed by the governor, then every four years we stand for retention. Um, I happen to be from an elected district. So, of course, I think elected is best because I think if you're going to have politics in a situation, you might as well have it right out in front where everybody can see it, mm-hmm. as opposed to retention elections where the politics are behind that those curtains over there and nobody don't look behind the curtain because we do, we're not required to. So, mm-hmm. um, but. Yeah. The Supreme Court, our our requirements are the same for judges. We have to have three hours of ethics. We have to have 12 hours of CLE, so 15 hours total. Uh, Usually that uh, has to be approved uh, by our judges. They bring us together for the judicial conference. Um, I think one time in my 15 years, and it might be twice in my 15 years, we actually had at judicial conference domestic violence training. Wow. So I think all judges need it. I think they need it to understand even in a criminal case, you know, why is the victim not showing up to prosecute him in the criminal case? You know, and I think judges may draw a they might draw a inappropriate or a false conclusion based on the victim not showing up. Right. Yeah. And uh, if, I will be honest, back in 1994, when I was a city attorney in the unified government, before it was a unified government, city of Kansas City, Kansas, victims used to be able to come in and sign a, a release saying, I won't sue the city if he hurts me. I just don't want to prosecute my case. Well, <laughs> that just meant that two days later, the Supreme, the uh, KCKPD was going back out to that house when the abuse continued. So they, you know, after they changed uh, that policy, then they said, well, we can go ahead with the victim and we can try and use some of the hearsay exceptions. So the theory being, well, if we put him through a trial, maybe that'll stop him, even if she doesn't show up, you know. Mm -hmm. So we've come a long way in domestic violence, but we haven't come far enough. So but I say contact the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Marla Luckert. You can contact the Office of Judicial Administration and tell them you think that the Supreme Court rules need updated and that, you know, certain domestic violence and certain types of domestic violence training need to be added to our curriculum. Okay. Very good. What closing thoughts do you have today about domestic violence and divorce? Well, I would say specifically towards domestic violence, I tell everybody, um, it's like cancer and house fires. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter what color you are or what type of education you have. It hits everybody. And if you think that you don't know someone who has been a victim of domestic violence, you're fooling yourself. It's one in four women, one in, I think it's seven, it might be nine. I know it's an odd number of men. So it's out there. The fact that, you know, you hear people say, well, you know, I hear a lot of people try and use that as a ploy to get custody. And so so I'm always worried about false allegations. Well, you should ask yourself this. 
If that's true, why isn't it brought up in more cases? And we know that most victims don't report because it takes seven times for somebody to actually leave a domestic violence situation. Uh, so if it's that prominent that it's false, why isn't it used all the time? And that's yeah. because it's not. That's because it's underreported and that it's fact it's the one in four is probably more than one in four. Yeah. Yep. And it's probably and men even more. It's one in seven. It's probably more than that that have experienced yeah. domestic violence because power yeah. and control politics, power and control abuse. It It's not, specific, you know, narcissism. It isn't just a gender thing. No, it's not. It happens in all kinds of uh, situations and all kinds of genders. It's not just a heterosexual situation mm -hmm. either. I've seen it yep. in all kinds of relationships. It's, yep. you know, even in caretakers and and the people that they're caretaking abuse mm -hmm. are there. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and my thought on that is let's be more worried about the true allegations than the false. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Well, this thanks been for having me. Incredible. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I certainly, you know, I, my, courtroom has been incredibly changed by the domestic violence education that I've received. And I would advocate for uh, all judges to get domestic violence evaluation. But I will tell you, honestly, a lot of the time it comes down to money for domestic violence. A lot of the trainings that come to the National Council come through the Office of Violence Against Women, which means federal funding. And that funding has been tied up for years in the Congress, arguing mm. about, well, is this money going to go to women who are not citizens? Or is yeah. it, going to, you know, those types of issues that they use to hold up the money. And mm -hmm. that's just really not a concern for me. Yeah. Care if you're a citizen or not a citizen. If you're standing in front of me and you need safety, then it's our court. It's our job to make sure that we get you to safety. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again. This has been incredible. I I think that anybody listening has uh, way more information, and and information is power in these situations. And so, thank you very much for what you've shared with us today. And and for anybody listening, if you'd like more information um, and support on ending an abusive uh, or domestic violence situation of any kind, please um, visit Starting Over Stronger, where I would be happy to have a uh, free discovery call with you to just talk about your situation and be able to direct you to the resources that will help you to create a safety plan to get out of that scenario. So thank you so much for listening, for being here today. Please share this with someone else who needs to hear it. And we'll see you again next Wednesday with more help as you divorce and hope as you are starting over stronger.